Welcome back to The Friendship Show here on KX93.5, Laguna's only FM. My name is Mark Miller. Uh, I'm here with Dawn Price, my co-host, and joining us this morning in the studio is Andrea Dearhart. Good morning, Andrea. Good morning. How are you? I'm wonderful. Good. It's great to have you back. Lovely to be here. You are the founder of the Heartway Foundation. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about Heartway Foundation and the, the work that you do? I'd be delighted. The Heartway is a charitable organization, a nonprofit organization that serves the community in supporting those in transition before, during, and after death. Hmm. And this is kind of what happened to us last time. Because like, as soon as you say that, then I just sort of, am, I don't know what the word is. I'm just flabbergasted that someone takes this on. What does that mean exactly? What is it you do exactly? Well, uh, it is flabbergasting for me as well, to be honest. It's a. I mean, I just, I, 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 when you say that, I'm immediately overwhelmed. And so I'm just overwhelmed trying to imagine it, let alone doing it, I guess, is, mm-hmm. is what happens to me. The spectrum of what we do at the Heartway is that broad as well. Sometimes it's uh, just supporting people from an advocacy or a guide of what services to access towards the end of life. Often it's the psychological, emotional perspective of it. Sometimes I'm holding someone's hand in the death process. And each family, each situation is completely different. And that's one of the important um, missions of the Heartway is to support people where they are on the journey. And our current medicalization of death is very limited and does not provide services to help families in times of need or crisis in understanding. As you said, even the word death is flabbergasting for some people. What do you mean by the medicalization of death? Currently, our current myth operating in caring for those that are dying is a medicalized approach. We have hospice, we have doctors, we have medication, and when someone is given an end-of-life diagnosis, there are certain uh, benefits that they receive. And it's revolving around medication, it's revolving around money, it's revolving around um, not suffering, and it's, it's this box, I call it a box. And it's very important, I think it's very useful to part of the process of dying, but it's just a little piece of what happens for us physically, emotionally, and spiritually in death. And we're leaving all of that out of the box. And people are being left to die fear-laden in institutional institutional closets and sad and alone. Is is the psychology of, of having the conversation with people does it, does it change drastically? When you talk about, I mean, we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. And so when it's just kind of this concept that's out there and you, it's sort of abstract is one thing. But doesn't the psychology change incredibly when you're talking to someone who knows that their death is soon, days, maybe hours? How does that change the, the, the way that you do things or the way that you approach it? Well, for me, holding hundreds in death, for example, absolutely inspires my life because I have it known physically and emotionally 
that we're going to die. I've watched it. I've seen it. I held it. And this existence that we, as we know, whatever our belief system is afterwards is gone. So it inspires my life to do as much as I can and to live the life that I want. And to be honest, with an undying gratitude for each breath I have, because I, I don't know when, the ne when it's going to end, when that breath cycle is going to end. Those that are dying have that in even a more immediacy. If you think about our lives, oh, I can do that tomorrow. Oh, I, I'm going to get to that next year. Um, when you know there's not a next year, everything has a different texture. The landscape colors of our lives are brighter. And it propels us. It propels us into saying those I love yous. This is how you touch my life. Is that because you've said you've, you've been with hundreds of people, held hundreds of people as they are dying. Is that the, the common experience that once you know that uh, you can no longer take life for granted, that it is going to end, that people's senses, their appreciation, the, the things that existed in their head as possibilities that they want to make those true and real now? For some, for some there's anger. For some there's bitterness. For some there's resentment. For some that's a why me. Is that, is that okay? <laughs> Absolutely. How do, is it? How do you deal with that? <laughs> you know, we have this, it's kind of interesting, we have this dualistic culture, right? Good, bad, right, wrong. That's how a Western mind kind of thinks, all of us, including myself. I try and eradicate it when I can. And we've created a monotheistic approach or a one-dimensional uh, approach to dying where it's only okay to be good. There's a real, I have a pet peeve, a real big push out there for a, defining a good death and a bad death. I don't think that exists. Death is death and you have everything good, bad, frustrating, scary, awful, beautiful, peaceful, all of that in it. I don't think we can define it as good or bad. Are there, aren't there like five steps that people talk about in the, the grieving and loss process? Yeah, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was famous for, she coined the kind of the stages of death and there's been a lot of criticism of that, that process. It's a great foundation to look for. The problem is we go through it all differently, and, and that's part of um, what the Heartways focus is, is to allow people uh, the space that they're in in this process and then support them. Sometimes there's education for them on what some other options are. But we all do this differently. In the hundreds that I've held, nobody's ever died the same. Yes, the heart stops in everybody, <laughs> but the experience of it doesn't. And honoring that, I personally think, is the path to our freedom. You have to, because it's such a personal thing. I mean, it's so intimate. It can't, there can't be anything more intimate, can there? Um, you have to, I would imagine, have to stay pretty open and pretty flexible in terms of uh, people's religious influence, their spiritual influence, their cultural influence. How do you hold all that? And do you, are you as much a sociologist as anything else? <laughs> I hold it with utter reverence, respect, and honor. And it's a pure gift to me because I learn and grow. Before I walk into a family's home, as I went late last night to a beautiful family whose patriarch was diagnosed with a terminal diagnosis of uh, just a few weeks to live, and families in all kinds of emotional turmoil from shock to denial, or let's go find other doctors, to 
how do we gracefully um, nurture him on his path to death? And before I walk in the door, my, my space is I'm going to open my heart, I'm going to open my soul and try to be a tabla rasa as much as I can, an empty palate to absorb where they are so that I might be in service to them the best, to walk in and say, it's this, it's that, or that, and they're in some other place would be such a disservice to them. For example, there's people in this family that um, want to start this aggressive treatment. Now my heart kind of breaks with that. He's just got a few weeks left. It's, it's obvious to me from the medical diagnosis that there's, there's not an ability to reverse um, the physicality of what's going on with the disease process and to put someone into deep chemotherapy and treatment and run them all over the country, in my heart, oh, that would be sad and they'd lose that opportunity for the transcendent feelings and experiences of this time of life. But I absolutely honor it, nor would I ever say, well, you shouldn't do that. What I will say is, what does this mean to you? Because underneath that, there's probably also a fear fear of letting go and that's where I would go with someone is to process that sometimes it opens it up sometimes they have to keep going on that trajectory how I, are you called into that kind of a situation how are you how do you access how do families access you how do you find out mm -hmm. so last night what, what what happened before that so that you were in that moment with that family happened to be with this family um, that they attended um, a symposium I did last week mm. called Dying Into Life. And the whole family was in the front row. It was beautiful. Three wow. generations. And they had lots of questions. And then they contacted contact me so afterwards. So they, they may have suspected or known that this might be coming? Yes. 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 Um, so that's one way mm -hmm. I do. I have the honor of doing a lot of speaking engagements, yeah. which I love. Um, also through my website, referrals. I'm blessed mm -hmm. with a lot of referrals from families that I've worked with, and those are just like sweet, sweet, sweet connections. Nice. Um, I, I have to say, I, I just recently lost my brother just uh, in, in the, the past uh, few months. And I, I think, you know, for the people around, um, you know, obviously the, you know, the, uh, the inclination is, is kind of what you were talking about. What can I do? How can we stop this? You know, let's go everywhere. Let's do everything that we possibly can. And I think for my brother, I think at some point, you know, because it was so sudden, I think you're kind of exploring options. But, you know, at some point, my, you know, my brother said, I, I just want to go home now. And what, what's going to happen is, is, is going to happen. But um, I just, I want to be home. I want to be where I know and with who I know and mm -hmm. and uh, it, it is what it is at this point do uh, it seems to me that people sort of find that peace that they come to that acceptance I, I guess not always but there must be like a huge relief that comes with the acceptance of the, this is where I am in my life I think there is a huge relief and it. it's about presiding it brings us to the the moment, this moment in our life. I, I love the analysis of the Fisher King and, and um, the thought of we come into moments in our life with so much narratives. Mm -hmm. uh, is, does he really need the money or should I give it to him? And maybe all these narratives that we have. And in a moment like that is a moment of presentness, is, is accepting and honoring what is, even if it's something 
that we're not comfortable with. I, some other thought came in that I thought might be very important to share right now about uh, when we come to that place of honoring and when we have family members that are wanting something different for us. I encourage and I speak a lot on having those conversations early in our families mm -hmm. with our children as well as our parents. What are your wishes? What are your desires? The advance directives are, are the legal document that helps us with that. But that's just a piece of paper. Uh, the second in the series on that symposium, Dying Into Life, will be just about that, the conversations that are pertinent in understanding what our loved one's wishes are. It is the sweetest thing to give someone that's dying as well as the children, if we're talking about an elder or those around, knowing that my mom or dad would not want heroics or knowing that they would. And to be able to honor that, I personally think, is the greatest gift humanity can give to each other. That was by far the greatest gift my father gave to my family when he was when he was dying was that we all knew we and he had had the conversation individually with each of us. I mean, he was a trust uh, officer and an attorney, so he had seen many families struggle with heroics, struggle with, and, it, and we think of heroics as you know, fifteen people in the in the room actively, but it's also about machines and about medications and and. He had had that individual conversation with my mother, with each of us, with their three kids, and and so we were completely united. We knew exactly what his wishes were, and that was an incredible gift. Uh, and I don't, and I've seen other uh, families in my life, you know, friends and things struggle with those same issues, and it's was amazingly helpful. It, it is, and I also want to honor those situations where we don't know. Right. So when it's impossible, somebody young ends up in a coma or something. Mm -hmm. And it, this conversations can still happen just in a different way. And it, it's really about becoming conscious and looking at all the aspects of this process that are so difficult. Mm -hmm. There was uh, another point in my life where uh, it's sort of probably the, the closest that I've ever had to deal with someone who was dying and dying now was uh, someone who was in the, was in a coma and, and we spent seven days you know ticking through all of the medical things that could be done because again they were very young this was a very sudden situation and, and trying to reverse it and at the end of seven days um, a, a neurologist a very smart educated person um, sat down with me and said here's what you need to understand is that what we're doing now is we are we are taking every extraordinary measure at our disposal um, to keep this person alive and we can continue to do that and we will continue to do that for as long as you would like um, but it will not reverse the current situation mm -hmm. and at this point in this person's life medically probably the worst thing that could happen is that they would wake up um, because their their life would not be any way that they would recognize it or any way that you would recognize them and you know this is what you need to consider at, at this time. And uh, it was a real eye-opener for me. It is, and that's the point right there. And it really boils down to morals, ethics, and quality of life. Um, I teach that in a class about quality of life. What is that? And it's very personal, very unique. And we're very good culturally at putting a judgment out there on what it should or shouldn't be. And I think that absolutely hinders our ability to understand what our personal 
mm -hmm. uh, quality of life is. You do a lot of lecturing. Uh, you just did a lecture uh, at uh, UCI, University of California, Irvine, and then you have a three-part symposium coming up um, where you're going to be lecturing. Can we take a music break quick, Andrea? Sure. And when we get back, I'd like to talk about uh, some of the work that, uh, that you do in, in universities and uh, in the community. All right, you're listening to The Friendship Show here on KX93.5, Laguna's only FM. We'll be back in just a moment with Andrea Dearheart of the Hartway Foundation. We're back with The Friendship Show on KX93.5, Laguna's only FM. We're sponsored every week by Friendship Shelter. My host this morning, my co-host this morning is Dawn Price, Executive Director of Friendship Shelter. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you wanted me to speak right I, now. I know. I did. I'm, I wasn't even looking in your direction, I, was I? I gave you no <laughs> cue whatsoever. You did not. Uh, we've been talking with Andrea. Not the record show. <laughs> <laughs> we've been talking with Andrea Dearheart of the Hartway Foundation, Conscious Living, Conscious Dying. One of the things that you do, Andrea, is you, you lecture a lot. You talk to a lot of people about what it means to be in uh, 
a conscious dying process. You recently spoke at the University of California, Irvine. The topic was death doula, which to me is an oxymoron because doula is about birth and uh, death is, is about, to me, the opposite of birth. So why the title and uh, what's it about? Uh, death doula, it is oxymoronic and it's the same thing. So you can look at a doula, a birth doula, as bringing life into this existence. A death doula would be about companioning, supporting, and nurturing some, birthing somebody into a new type of existence, whatever that is. Man, see now, here you go again. You've got me just sort of stunned in my tracks. When you say it like that, when you say that, that we're going to birth people into death, then all of a sudden death to me, starts to not be an ending, but a beginning. Is it? You tried to get me here last time <laughs> as well. <laughs> I think, I, to be honest, my experience is both. Is it's an ending of what we know here for some. Now, now we, we're, we're touching on so many beautiful religious beliefs and spiritual beliefs that I want to honor and welcome into the room as well. So some believe there is no death that we just move on to a different existence, a different realm, a different incarnation. In that moment? In that moment. Uh, different traditions like Tibetan uh, traditions, there's a period of 49 days where there's a transition period from this body into another realm. But, um, I have to tell you, uh, quick, I don't want to interrupt no you. Problem. I've been through that process with someone uh, who was a Buddhist and, and her family lived in Japan and it was on the 50th day, and I'm sitting in America, and I get a phone call, and I'm counting the days, because I understand that that's the religious belief of, of her and her family. And I get a phone call, and it's her mother, and she says, you know, I, I'm in America, um, can you come and pick me up? I'm at the airport. And I said, yes, of course, I've been waiting for you. And she said, today is the 50th day, this is the passing. And I said, yes, I know. Why did you, I, you should have told me you were coming. I've been waiting for 50 days. And then we, we went through that process. It was a very cool moment for us. Yeah, Sorry to sidetrack you. No, it's beautiful, um, beautiful tradition. So some have this belief that the existence just transforms or transmutes. Um, and that's important to honor in all of us. Also, our beliefs of what happens after life uh, gives us a beautiful hope. Um, I'm never going to sit here and say, it's not, it ain't, <laughs> all those <laughs> poor English words. But I do believe it's an ending of what we know here. And wherever that is from there, we'll see. All right. Uh, who are you talking to when you're at UCI talking about death doulas? On Wednesday morning, I have the honor of speaking to an organization called the Inside Edge at the University Club. And it was a beautiful group, packed house, very interested in, in the topic, and I spent the hour talking about what it was like to be a death doula. Is that what you are? You're a death doula? You have that privilege. Do, I was going to say, do people get really nervous when you walk in a room? <laughs> yes. I'm called the death angel sometimes, and some people say to me, 
I'm not ready to see you. And I said, good, I'm about living until we take our last breath. I have to say, in the way that I was raised, there's a tradition. I was raised a Roman Catholic. And when someone is ill and the, and the time has come, you know, there's there's uh, sacraments that, that take place. And one of the things that happens is the, the elder women in the community come and they start to pray the rosary. And, uh, and I've said many times, you know, got those angels of death out of here. <laughs> Because that you know when you know when that starts that it's uh, it's it's you're getting very close to the end and it's it's a very difficult experience. I'm not that scary, am I, Mark? No, that's <laughs> why I you know I would like to say that you know you know I hope I'm blessed with a long, long, long life, and I hope yours is a little longer. Because if I have to go out with someone, I would just as soon it be you, because I would yeah. think it would be a, a a very easy, very gentle transition. It would be my honor. You have a, a three-part symposium coming up. What, what's the name of that? You have all kinds of interesting titles that you give things. Mm -hmm. It's called Dying Into Life. And the first of the three-part series was last week. And the next one will be in February and one in May. And it's a symposium I created through Seeds Arts and Education, which is uh, the Heartweight's physical sponsor. And... I focused on three areas that I thought would be very helpful um, to our community, the conversation. Last week was death beyond denial, and that was about defining really what the operating living mythologies or myths are in our culture. So I talked about medicalization of death, and I talked about how the institutions, the end of our life, hospital, hospices, hospices, mortuaries, are perpetuating a little bit more of the denial and not allowing us to be fully uh, into our experience of death. You, you told an interesting story last time you were here that, again, just sort of changed my whole perspective on this, that sort of the, the medicalization of uh, dying uh, was by accident. Would you tell that story about uh, living rooms and uh, 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 the war and how that changed everything? Yes, our, our living rooms today used to be called the parlor. And the parlor... Um, was a place where we laid to rest our family members, our uh, elders and people that died in the community would come and do vigil and rituals and say their final goodbyes. And oftentimes the loved one, when they were ready to be buried, the family would carry them out uh, to the backyard in the family plot and bury them in the family plot. So this is nothing new, but the room changed from a parlor to a living room. And once it became a living room, you couldn't lay to rest somebody that had died. And that changed a lot over the last hundred years. A lot of the wars changed that were, you know, thousands and thousands, unfortunately, of men and eventually women came in there, died, and they had to figure out how to bury and transport mm -hmm. and embalming was, uh, developed at that particular time? Uh, I find that fascinating. I'm, I'm sorry, I stepped away to answer the phone. Um, we have a caller on the phone. Uh, uh, caller, are you there? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Are you guys hearing her? Yes. Oh, good. There she is. Um, I got in this morning, and uh, I was talking with Andrew in the lobby, and, and she said, um, would you please ask your mom to call, and I'd, I'd like to talk with her. Uh, because my mom was a, a nurse for, I don't know, 100 years or something like that. And, uh, and she worked uh, in uh, the emergency room. She worked in intensive care. And uh, my, when, when I was growing up, my mom uh, told uh, 
several stories about what it's like to be with someone at uh, uh, the, the time of their death and all those sorts of things. So uh, this is my mom's on the phone. Mom, welcome to Friendship Show. Why, thank you, Mark. <laughs> Hi, Mom. <laughs> Hi. Uh, I have to say, when my mom called in and I answered the phone, she said, that woman is just wonderful. Aww. So, I'm um, blushing. Uh, so uh, apparently, uh, uh, Andrea Dearheart and my mom are supposed to be good friends, and I'm, uh, I'm happy to facilitate that. Mom, you're no longer a nurse, right? No, I've been retired for quite some time now, Mark. You not gone not that long, really, Mom. Well, but seven years. I seven guess. years. Yeah. Um, I, one of the things I think that's interesting is, Mom, you just finished. Even though you're retired, you just finished an, an interesting uh, project that you were working on with uh, a, a group of churches where you where you live now in Minnesota. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that was? Well, it's a grief support group. Um, which is something I did when I still was working. So it was very interesting to me. And as Mark, you said, we had lost a very important part of our family earlier this year, and I thought that it would be helpful for me to help facilitate this group um, and hopefully give some support to other people. Mom, when you uh, when you were a nurse, and we, we talked a, a little bit uh, this morning, that it was actually when you were in the emergency room yeah. that you experienced yeah. more deaths than people in intensive care? Yes. Is that because, Mom, in intensive care, when someone gets to the, the final stages of life, are they, are they, is that when they're moved to hospice and so you, they, that doesn't happen there? No. Actually, Mark, it was because the length of time that I worked in intensive care um, I only worked there for a short period of time because I didn't like it. Oh, you did it? Um, I did not. Um, it was too machine orientated, and I liked to be able to talk with my patients and have them talk to me. So that's probably one of the reasons where I did spend a lot of time in the emergency room. I was there for 10 years before I moved on to a, you know, a different position. Oh, well, no wonder um, you like uh, Andrea Dearheart because I think that's. You've made that point before, which you call the medicalization of death, and that it all kind of becomes about removing people from the experience and putting all of this technology in between us so that we don't have to experience it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, you know, and I'm sure Andre probably feels the same way. If I would have, you know, the power or um, able to accomplish it, I would never have one of my family members take their last breath in a hospital. I would rather have them be in their home situation, surrounded by the people who love them, and in a in an environment that they know and are comfortable in. All right, Andrea is jumping up and down. <laughs> what do, What do you think about that, Andrea? Yes, yes, yes. And I do want to say it's not that um, medical professions are not, professionals are not compassionate. I'm speaking to one right now um, because they are. Um, by the way, Mom, nurses are my favorite people in the whole wide world. <laughs> Thank you. <coughs> I love working with nurses. Why is that? <coughs> they have the heartbeat of life in their hands. I work with dozens of hospices and I don't have much need to talk to the doctor, but I always want to talk to the nurse because they 
understand the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual aspects. Um, well, my mom would tell you hospitals are run by nurses. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, ab- absolutely. I'm curious about the, uh, in the, I would think, and Mrs. Miller, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you're in an emergency room setting, a lot of those deaths are sudden and unexpected and how that changes the sort of the whole experience and and Andrea in an emergency situation where there hasn't been time to prepare on either the part of the person who's dying or the family and and how how do we help people find moments of peace in those situations I just jumped there when you had had said that and um, there's is actually lots of opportunities there's just not as available right now when there's a sudden death let's say in an ER, of oftentimes we're brisk away. There's not a time to transition. You cannot help but go into shock. That's one of the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages, Mm -hmm. go into shock. And that takes some time to start coming out of it. And so it would be beautiful if someone died in the emergency room, the loved one was um, cleaned up if needed, moved into a room where the family can come in and spend some time. Maybe there was a therapeutic beautiful soul there to support and nurture give them the opportunity to touch maybe some of the end of life rituals can be conducted Mm -hmm. at that particular time and given the amount of time that they need before they feel they might be able to take a separation and that might be hours Mm -hmm. that would help so much in moving the process along for families and allow them to engage with the feelings and um, we reduce that paralyzed feeling and sometimes that takes days or months, of course, yeah. but for sure. I do need to say, Andrea, that yes. the emergency room that I worked in did allow us to make that available. Lovely. Um, the other thing I, I would like to say is you talked about the um, helping them transition. Mm-hmm. A lesson that I learned from a beautiful CRNA that I worked with is when we knew that that code, it would, mostly ours would be in a code situation, a code Mm -hmm. blue situation. When we knew that we had exhausted everything that we would do and Mm -hmm. that that person would, you know, no longer, that we would do nothing, no more um, extreme measures. Mm -hmm. This CRNA, who would be at the head of the bed anyhow, bagging a patient, Mm -hmm. helping them breathe, Mm -hmm. would lean over and whisper in their ear Mm -hmm. and pray for, and pray with their, pray for them. Um, And always, you know, um, Mm. asking the good Lord to accept them and help them make that transition. That is something that has stayed with me for the rest of my career Mm -hmm. and even into now. Um, I just think it was a beautiful thing that she did. Yes. And I can say that I I was able to do the same thing then for my son mm. when when he passed this spring. So beautiful, wow. beautiful. Um, Mom, Andrew was uh, saying earlier that um, to be present with someone in that last moment is uh, something that's it's 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 a very honored. Thing to to be able to do to share that moment with someone, and then it was very transforming. I know that uh, I remember you telling stories about um, the unbelievable calm and peace 
that's involved in that moment. Do you, mm -hmm. you do you have any stories you want to share about what it's like to to be in that last moment with somebody? Um, well, you had one or two experiences. Either you saw a great peace and a calmness, or you saw a struggle, and you just never knew where that person was at that time, you know, when they were doing that. Um, I do know, and I, unfortunately you were not able to experience that, but I do know at the last hours with your brother, who was basically sedated to the point where he was non-responsive, yet would have conversations with his father. Mm. That we talk oh, about. Oh, really? He was? Yeah. Yes, he did. Yes, Elizabeth actually witnessed those things. And you talk about having someone there to help. I think you just have to clarify, Mom, that uh, that to my father, his father, your husband, is passed. Yes. Okay. All right. Yes. Go ahead. For fifteen years. Yeah. Um, and as a family, we truly believed that he was there to help your brother make that final crossover. I think that's interesting, Mom. Just, and I'm sorry, now we're just sort of talking about our family, but I think that's interesting because when Dad died, uh, Mike was with Dad when, when, when Dad passed. You were with Dad. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember Mike saying um, that uh, at, at that moment when he knew that uh, Dad was no longer there, he said he looked up and saw Dad standing in the doorway of, uh, of, of the room and and uh, that dad was saying to him, I, uh, I, I've got to go right now. There's some people I really want to see, but I'll be back. So I, that wow. is kind of a eerie full circle. <laughs> Absolutely. Can we talk a little bit about holidays and uh, how people deal with the, the passing of, uh, of loved ones during the holidays, Andrea? Sure. Um, the holidays is such a poignant, uh, melancholy, often full of memories experience for all of our lives and it's the time if we've lost a loved one that their memory comes very very close to the the heartbeat of our existence and for some it's very very difficult very very difficult to get through the holidays especially the first time around after we've lost someone uh, I think it's a, it's very beautiful to stop and honor those moments and bring our loved ones close it's gonna be painful because we're missing, we're attached, we want those moments, they're not here to share with us anymore. And it's also an opportunity to bring rituals in, um, bringing rituals to honor our uh, loved ones that have passed. My mother started a ritual uh, the year after my dad passed that my family still does, and it's a very simple candle ritual, um, and there's uh, three candles and there are three kids, so um, each of us reads and we're not always all together but somebody steps in for I'm usually the person not there because I live farthest away but I think the first year we all kind of rolled our eyes a little bit to be frank um, and we have to do this for mom because she found this cheesy candle ritual online and we all have to do this it has become incredibly meaningful and it was from the very first time once we got over ourselves and just gave ourselves over to the ritual but it I think what it does for our family, and I'll see if I can find this and maybe we can link to it with the podcast because it is the holidays and, and it's just one example of a ritual that might be helpful. Um, now, you know, 
12, 13 years later, um, it's, it's the time to do that. And we know we're going to do that. And it, it, it helps sort of just knowing that we're going to have that moment and it kind of releases the tension from the rest of the experience of the holidays because we, we have set that aside. Andrea, you said something uh, earlier when, when we were talking off air that um, not a lot of deaths actually happen during the holiday season, um, that they happen oftentimes in January. After the holiday seasons, because loved ones want to be here for the holidays with, with their family and, and not to have the holiday uh, laced with a death. And so they, they hang on. Statistically, and there's a lot of more deaths in uh, January after the after the new year. I want to share one little tiny ritual, if I could, as Please, well. Please, sorry. No, um, <laughs> is uh, I'm a, a love letter writer. Mm. And so when I'm feeling an emotional struggle in life as well, in a relationship and needing to work something out, I write a love letter. Now, it's not always sweet and nice and filled with love, to be <laughs> honest, but it's a way of expressing. So writing a, a letter to your loved one that has passed is often a way to get in touch with probably some emotions and feelings that we don't know are rising up. And sometimes we can read that letter, we can um, burn it, we can share it with other family members, and it's also a beautiful way of uniting and expressing and getting in touch mm -hmm. with our emotions around that. All right. As always happens on this show, we run out of time long before we run out of things to talk about. I'm just going to give the last word to my mom. Mom, you were, uh, have been a grief counselor for uh, decades. Uh, any advice that you give people at this time of year who are uh, missing people who have passed? You know, I think that they've actually covered it quite well. It is the same thing. I mean, this will be the hardest, you know, the hardest time for them, these first holidays. Um, they need to just be kind to themselves. And they either, some either want to continue their rituals as, as normal, and some people like to start something new. Um, that candle ritual that Dawn was talking about was beautiful, but um, just they just need to, you know, do what, what makes them feel comfortable at this time. All right. Mom, thanks for calling in this morning. Thanks, oh, Mom. I so love lovely I, I talking love your with guest, you. you know. All right. How much snow do you have right now? Um, it's melting. It's actually oh, it is. almost going to be 40 degrees today. Oh, so. okay. Well. Mrs. Miller, We're you excited. need to come to California. It's been too long. Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking of it. Good. I'm going to say, Mom, I'm, I'm so glad that it's 40 degrees there. Uh, we're all standing around in flip-flops and shorts right now. <laughs> Sorry. I got in trouble I on Facebook that. for that yesterday. <laughs> all right. You've been listening to The Friendship Show on KX93.5, Laguna's only FM. Uh, my name is Mark Miller. We've been talking with Andrea Deerhart of the Hartway Foundation. We will be back next week. Up next is uh, Ida Mae and Tommy J with well, some radio neighboring. I feel like an old hobo on sad lonesome and blue. I was fair as a summer day. Now the summer days are through. You pass through places and places pass through you, but you carry them with you on the soles of your traveling shoes. I love you so dearly, I love you so clearly I'll wake you up in the morning so early Just to tell you I got the wandering blues I got the 